I'm feeling good, mind, body, and spirit. So thank you for asking. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm excited this morning because one of, well, probably I could say one of the most beloved persons in my life is on the other end of this phone. (laughs) Dr. Carolyn Denard and I are soulmates. Not only is she a historian, but she is my first cousin. We grew up together. We uh, created havoc together. We laughed (laughs) until we fell out of the chairs together. Our mothers were as close as they could be. We ran up and down the roads in Mississippi together, and I could go on and on and on about how much I love this woman. Um, But I won't, because that's not why we're here today. We're here because she had the foresight to make history a priority for her in her studies. And let me just give you a few of her accomplishments. She is the founder and board chair of the Toni Morrison Society. Now, Dr. Joe, you know who Toni Morrison is, right? She's a Buckeye. I do know, but I'm sure our guests will elaborate, yeah. Yeah, she's a Buckeye. She also served as associate provost and professor of English at Georgia College and State University. Her bachelor's degree is in English from Jackson State. She and I were at Indiana University together where she got her master's in teaching in English. And she has a PhD in American studies from Emory University. And she's just, her, her accomplishments go on and on and on. She's worked at several universities in leadership capacities, but her niche has always been culture. And I didn't really appreciate it until I got to be an adult. So let me just say, welcome, Dr. Carolyn. And we are so delighted that you took time out to join us this morning. Thank you, Iris. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Joe. Thank you so much. Good morning. Uh, We are our own little history makers, Iris, growing up in Mississippi and all those summers. But uh, I am delighted to be here. Thank you for that introduction. And just to be correct, it's noon now, so it's 12.04. It's the afternoon. Okay, good afternoon. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I guess Dr. Joe well, is not the only one. Well, not where I am. Right. <laughs> that is correct. That is yes, correct. Yes, be kind to me today. It's Super Bowl weekend as we record this, and, and I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan in L.A. Rams country, so please just be kind oh to goodness. me. It is 9 o'clock in the morning here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay, okay. so I was half right. Um, Dr. Carolyn, what possessed you to study history and culture when you were growing up? Well, I think um, if you grow up in the Jim Crow South and you are, I think, in the same way that um, Carter G. Woodson was in starting the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, you're always... um, looking for uh, yourself in that history and you're trying to make sure that you know about your people and about your history and um, and I come from a family of educators and ministers and people who were always engaged in programs and solemn assemblies so there was there were so many opportunities actually to um, hear about African-American history, and there was always a sense that there was more, and so it was just a natural for me, Um, and I was happy to have the opportunity at Jackson State and later at Indiana and certainly during the uh, dissertation to study that history and to really begin to appreciate it. Um, That's and, and I think when you think about how we access that history growing up in the South where there was no curriculum, um, it really was self-agency. It was, it was 
we did it in our own organic ways, you know, at um, school programs and vacation Bible school and during Negro History Week. Um, all of those were organic ways that I was able to access that history and come to understand that there was so much more and uh, so much more work that needed to be done. So um, it was just a natural for me to go into that area when I began to do my graduate work. And that's not to to exclude the fact that our mothers went to HBCUs. That was a, a ritual in the South, which encouraged a study of our history. And um, I, I just, that was where I learned black history was from my family. Um, yeah. Yes. And so um, when you were studying um, at the various institutions, what was the impetus for the study of Toni Morrison? Well, I was involved in the late 60s in a court order for desegregation now, and one of the, I guess, there there was a lot that happened that was good about that in terms of ending segregation in the schools, but in the process, we lost a lot. we lost a lot of those rituals that you're talking about, a lot of that access to people who cared about us and wanted us to know these things. And so I, um, I was involved in that moment when they closed most of the black high schools in the South and in small towns in the South. And black high schools were the center of the cultural activity, you know, whether it was the spring concert or the program or the, or the winter um, concert or whether it was baccalaureate or graduation, all of these things were big community events. And um, and so they closed my high school and all of the all of that went away and we had to go to what had been predominantly white high schools. And so I had a great sense of loss that I carried with me um, through high school and I went immediately to Jackson State to an HBCU trying to recapture some of that. And so that um, sense of loss was still with me. And when I read Toni Morrison and Sula was the first novel I read, and and certainly it was about women's friendships, but it was also about that community. And one of the things that I, um, it was a small community in in, in Ohio, but it was um, so reminiscent of so much I remember from growing up in my own small community in the South. And Morrison was just so on, on point, so affirmative, um, bringing all of that together. Uh, she likes to call it uh, the elaborately socialized world of black people, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, I was just totally intrigued by that and wanted to just read more and study more and try to do that analysis so that other scholars and my students would understand the value that Morrison brought to those novels. Is is Toni Morrison still um, relevant in the world of black people today, in your opinion? Uh, oh my goodness, yes. Um, Toni Morrison is really just a force in African American culture was when she was alive and, and is still now. Um, I think at the at the base of understanding Toni Morrison is what I'd like to say is just her unconditional love for black people. And that is, it doesn't mean she was always, um, that, that she wasn't able to be critical, but she was able to dig deep and try to provide context and cultural understanding of what was going on in the communities that she remembered. So that's, sort of her worldview is one thing that I think we all cherish. But she was an editor, she was a teacher, she was a novelist, she wrote the libretto for operas, um, she t- taught at Princeton and started a um, studio performance um, platform there, the Princeton Atelier. And so, so Marcia was a Renaissance woman. She, she went, brought her brilliance to everything she touched. And I think we are learning from that, um, that, you know, we do, we can do this work in many, many arenas. 
and we certainly have her the products of her labor to celebrate and to read and to engage in but we also have um, the example of her energy and her commitment so oh, she is still I think um, sort of the reigning um, light in African American culture and I um, I almost said queen but <laughs> maybe that's appropriate but I wanted, don't want to overstate but um I think she still serves an entirely important role, and there's no program that you can think about that involves the study of African-American life and history and culture and art that would not include Toni Morrison. And Dr. Joe, if you have any questions for Dr. Carolyn, please jump in here. I, I, I do. I think it, it's kind of an observation and somewhat of a question. So when the two of you both talked about growing up and when we heard our guests talk about the influence that growing up in the South had on her, so many times younger people, and pretty much everyone is younger than me now, but younger people, when we talk about Black History Month and when we talk about Black history, sometimes say, well, gee, all that's past, and we should really look forward. But for those of us who are baby boomers and older, this was part of our lives. I was mm -hmm. born the same year that Rosa Parks would not stand up. And so this is our lived experience. And so not only Toni Morrison, but also folks like our speaker capture that. And that's so much, that's so important as part of Black History Month and, and all year round. Mm -hmm. And not only did we learn uh, lessons in the home, but we learned lessons from every black institution. So yes, we, yes, we had right. um, an education inside the home and outside the home. And I, right. I think we've lost some of that today, thanks to technology, mm -hmm. that everything mm -hmm. is automated and um, flipped and scripted. And the innate love and um, nurturing that we received as youngsters in the South has mm -hmm. not... Uh, Flourished. Go ahead. Well, I think that, that actually one is the nature of my the, question. The big takeaway, I think, uh, from this discussion we're having about black history is the self-agency of um, black people to tell their own story. I mean, Carter G. Woodson is certainly uh, a prime example of that. But in the absence of a formal curriculum, um, we told our stories in our communities and in I know at Jackson State when I was an undergraduate in the English department you were required to take a genre course and an author course and we could of course choose Richard Wright or Margaret Walker Alexander to be, we didn't have to choose Faulkner as the author to study or we could choose African-American poetry as the genre so there were ways that they were able to integrate that into the curriculum without it being formalized. And um, as you said, I think our parents, uh, certainly mine, because they were both educators. My mother was a first grade teacher and an elementary school librarian, so she read the poetry of black poets to us on the living room couch. You know, we sat there, and that's when I heard the names of Bon Thompson, Langston Hughes, and Gwendolyn Brooks. It was quite literally at my mother's knee. So. Um, I think the takeaway for me is that it is up to us, um, wh whether it's a week or a month, or and, and, and that's just a moment of celebration. We should be about this all of the time, you know, telling our story. And I think this, what our parents did, I think what Dr. Joe is referencing, and the life we live, did I get cut off, is certainly an example of that. Okay, okay. And so I wonder, in this day and age, what, what takes the place of that for our youth who aren't living necessarily the American dream we had envisioned of a totally integrated society, but certainly the kinds of neighborhoods and communities that we had in the past don't exist to the extent they did in the past. How do we, and especially for our listeners, how do we teach our children black history as a, as a lived experience? Well, I think we need to 
revisit sort of the secular schools that we used to have. I mean, I think the Freedom School is in the Freedom Schools that were in the South in the 60s is certainly one example. Um, and I think other other cultures do this. You know, you go to school, public school five days a week, or you go to Hebrew school after that if, you know, you're Jewish, or we had Freedom Schools in the South. And so I think we need to think seriously about um, those kinds of secular uh, volunteer community neighborhood organizations that we can start where we do this work ourselves where we um, we still advocate in the public sphere for changes in the curriculum, but we also work with our youth in our communities, whether it's churches or whether it's in sororities or fraternities or whether it's in other kinds of youth programs that our, our children are involved in, to make space for that. So I think that um, the example of the self-agency of our parents and our grandparents when the odds were certainly stronger against them is one to take away. We have to take a really quick break here and we're going to come back and talk about this whole notion of critical race theory and excluding black history from American history when we come back on the window. Oh, I guess we don't have to take a break now. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Um, right now there's a debate going on um, in certain circles that critical race theory is a separatist, slanted philosophy that should be eliminated from history. Dr. Carolyn, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think there's just a gross misunderstanding about what's going on with critical race theory. Um, it's clearly just a an analysis of history that shows the ways in which race has impacted what we understand in our daily lives. And um, it's I mean, I, I want to say that it's a mystery that it has become such a hotbed, but, you know, if you, if I think about it, then I understand why, and it's not really a mystery, but it's certainly um, a result of misunderstanding. I mean, if you want to teach about the GI Bill and you don't explain that black veterans in the South could not accept, access the GI Bill and the home ownership that went with that in the same way that um, white veterans could, then you you begin to understand something about equity and the GI Bill um, in in a way that just you would not understand before. And I think it, it that kind of revelation, whether it's about housing, whether it's about education, you know, you said, well, why don't people do this? And when you couldn't even enter the many of the colleges in the south until you know after the 70s and so i think when students understand that when those when the community understands that i you would hope that they would have a different posture about how we move forward but to shut it down um is just perpetuating ignorance quite quite literally so now we have to take I, I think the break it's just a gross misunderstanding Okay. I'm Thank sorry. You. Now we have to break the break. We That's will be back on the window. We are back on the window and we are talking talking to Dr. Carolyn Denard who is a historian and the founder of the Toni Morrison Society. Um, Dr. Denard, what should we as black parents and grandparents be doing to encourage more appreciation for our history and culture with the generations that are behind us? There's a difference between the the surrounding information that we had growing up versus what 
younger people have right now. And um, I think that there's, there's a void in, in, in just having the pride that we had. What can mm-hmm. we do as, as a group of people, not being put into the separatist category, but be, being put into a category of proud black people? Well, I think, first of all, we have to be deliberate and make the time. And um, if your grandchildren are visiting with you, then um, you have story time. And make sure that that story time is about a story about African-American history. Um, You can have game time. And there are many games out there now that are uh, African-American history games. There are many ways to impart that history in the same way that our parents did for us um, in informal ways. So I think we have to make that time in our own homes. I also think we have to be vigilant about the curriculum that is being taught in the schools uh, to make sure that it's inclusive. And um, I think we have to get our children involved in, in political action where they learn about what was at stake with getting the right to vote and why they need to vote. Well, there's just so many ways to do that, you know, to to understand something about that history. And I think, um, you know, these certainly can be age appropriate, but there are so many avenues, I think, from the kitchen table to the after-school programs to the church programs to the chapel programs, all of those things are ways to do that. And we just have to say that we're going to be deliberate. We, we have to roll up our sleeves and do what we need to do and make it important to us and our children. Um, Dr. Joe, do you have a final question for Dr. Carolyn? No, I would just add to that, that, that we often bemoan the fact that we do live in a technology age that's uh, dominated by social media, but we can use that vehicle too. When we need to reach people, we go to where they are. I know I have a cousin who does Black History posts on her social media account. And so for all of us, part of history is learning mm-hmm. from the past yeah. so that the good things repeat themselves and the bad things don't, but also how do we then prepare for the future? And we can look at this new age of communication as being a positive because we can get the word out to even more people similar to the ways that Dr. Carolyn has suggested. So thank you for everything you've done in the past to keep it alive to our listeners. It's on you now, especially those of the younger generations, to continue to make history first and foremost, but to continue to help everyone, not just folks of color, but help everyone understand the contributions we've made, the challenges that we've come through, and and we're not done yet. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be a part of that and encourage others out there, your listeners, to take it upon themselves to... um, to be a part of sharing that history as well. Thank you, Dr. Carolyn, and uh, we wish you a happy weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Happy weekend to both of you. All right. Dr. Joe? Yes, so I am, we have another guest who's going to join us in just a few minutes, but I'm going to um, make a confession of my own. So a number of years ago, the Smithsonian African American Museum opened in Washington, D.C., and if anyone hasn't been to see that, I'm not sure what the status is in terms of visitation hours and that type of thing in the pandemic, but it is a site worth beholding. But when I had the privilege of being there during the grand opening weekend, we were at a restaurant, and there was a gentleman who sat beside me who shared with me the fact that as a Native American, as an indigenous person, that he felt compelled to be in town for the opening of the African-American Museum. And then he looked at me and said, gee, have you been to the museums here that celebrate the cultures of others in the United States? And I confessed that I had not. And so even as we make African-American history and talk about the importance of black history, it's incumbent upon us as well to acknowledge that just as we've said, this is not just a country that was built by white males. And so to the extent that we can further the cause of that as it relates to other ethnicities and other backgrounds 
as well. That's that work on behalf of all of us. And again, this is not meant to hate on white people. It's meant to say that we are all better off if we have a full knowledge of what our country is and, and what's been the backbone of our country and what we need to do to get better going forward. Dr. Joe, I think our second guest is here. Well, thank you. We are also thrilled to have yet another person who's devoting her time to us and our audience this morning. She's actually been a guest on the window in the past. And by the way, just a reminder to everyone listening that this is about our 50th show now. And so if you've missed any of our past episodes, you can go to our website. It's thewindownow.com. Thewindownow.com. And you can hear all of our past shows over the past year. And also, if you have any feedback for us, either before, during, or after our live shows, you can use our new Gmail account. And that's thewindowfeedback at gmail.com. Thewindowfeedback at gmail.com. But among our past guests, and our guest on the line right now, is Dr. Joanne Lunsford. She has talked to us in the past. And it's still, as Dr. Carolyn just said, still a hot button with some misunderstanding about what this thing called critical race theory is and how it's being used to some extent as a bit of a dog whistle to advocate against teaching American history that includes all people. So, Dr. Lunsford, welcome to the window. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Great to be here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Happy Saturday to you and the audience. Thank you. Could you introduce yourself to us and in doing so explain why it is that you are an expert on critical race theory? Well, my name is Joanne Lunsford, as you say. Um, I have been part of the DEI world before DEI was even a formalized theory, right? Always been interested in um, diversity and culture. And so when I got to my doctoral studies, And it wasn't until I got to my doctoral studies, actually, that I was even familiar with or introduced to critical race theory or CRT. And so when I started my um, doctoral studies, I then was going into culture and where do I want to go from here and what do I want my dissertation and all this to be in. And it led to critical race theory and evaluation of systems and processes and how all the pain and trauma and how all the exclusion and how it all impacts those from the past all the way up until now. And so that's how I got introduced to it. Um, my actual senior capstone actually been um, talked about how do we overcome racial inequality by using the critical race theory as well as cognitive-based approaches and social learning modalities. So it wasn't until I was in my doctoral studies that I was actually introduced to the formal term of uh, critical race theory. Okay, so let's begin to start to clear up then some of the confusion. So you said critical race theory is something you learned in your doctoral studies. But let me give you a a little scenario. My son went to middle school in North Carolina. We're from Ohio. We had moved to North Carolina. And I, growing up in Ohio, heard very little in my traditional American history books in kindergarten through 12th grade about the contributions of other Americans other than Caucasians. And so when my son was in middle school in the South, I was surprised to see that there was the same situation in the South. And so I went to the principal of the school and said, gee, in K-12 education, in this textbook, I don't see much about anything other than white history, if you will. Do you teach black history? Do you talk about the contributions that black scientists and, and, and professors and teachers And do you talk anything about the history of black people in American history textbooks? That is different, if my understanding is correct, than saying, gee, can you teach my son in middle school a doctoral level theory about the system of race in our society? Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. Um, there are there are those who argue that you know the primary and secondary should be informed by CRT, meaning it should the history that's taught should be inclusive of everyone. They're not saying let's teach CRT. That's such a advanced level of understanding or advanced level of study that it's not even on the bachelor level. It's not even on the master's level, right? It's on the doctoral level. It's on those that are pursuing medical degrees, law degrees, other professional doctors as well as their PhDs. And so when we're so when parents are in society are saying 
that young folks need to learn about all-inclusive history from those of black, brown, indigenous, and Asian folks is saying that, hey, when this nation was, when, when indigenous folks, when this nation was already inhabited by indigenous folks, and those from the dominant culture came over, and they annihilated it, this this culture as well as when Af- when Africans were stolen and brought to this nation as slaves, when Asian Americans were came over and were used lies to build the railroads, and later in turn, when um, when um, when those who are not of the when Latin folks their land was taken and later detained, etc. When we're saying include that history and that that children should learn about that, they're not saying they're saying that hey. That is as much much as American history as the revolutionary as the Rev, as American Revolution, as well as the civil civil rights uh, uh, campaign. The civil rights movement was just as much as American history as as all the fundamental things that they're teaching about when it comes to the creation of this nation. And so, when we're saying that if young enough folks from diverse cultures or non-dominant cultures are are able to go through the stuff. Then young enough folks from diverse culture, from non from uh, dominant cultures are should be able to learn about this stuff. And we're saying, hey, teach about it, not saying, hey, let's talk about strategy and structure and all this kind of stuff, so that we learn that everyone really are, everyone is human, and everyone has had a part of this history, and everyone is American. Well, you said a lot, so let me break that down then, while I have your <laughs> expert opinion on the line. So. So, good stuff. So, for starters, Dr. Carolyn, who just left us, said that mm, she's not sure how the confusion came about. And then she alluded to the fact that she really doesn't suspect she knows. So, let me just say it. One of the main reasons that the confusion came about between critical race theory and just good old-fashioned factual teaching of American history is that there are those who chose to use critical race theory as a dog whistle. So when people were saying, why doesn't our history taught to our children and to adults reflect the true history of our country, there were others who said, gee, we don't want that to happen, so let's blow the critical race theory dog whistle, and that will frighten everyone. So that across the country, there are right now only a handful, but hopefully this won't grow, a number of cities and states who are saying, gee, Let's not teach critical race theory. In fact, I seem to recall a recent past president of the United States who stepped out against, to use the term DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's being taught in our workplaces as to how to be sure that's all inclusive. I remember a former president saying, let's not even teach that because that's critical race theory. How to interact with others is critical race theory. So that's just my commentary. Don't be confused. Don't believe the hype. Teaching the history of America as it is is not the same as teaching hatred in the schools. Okay? Now, let's talk about what else you said, Dr. Joanne. I mean, I Some absolutely, of, just, in, just in response, I absolutely agree with your dog whistle because we, we forget to talk about fragility and privilege. And when it comes to it, when it, when it really boils down to it, those in the dominant culture are try- starting to feel that they're getting a loss of privilege and they're they're losing their sense of entitlement. And so that fragility comes that says, we don't want to talk about race and everything. We want things to remain where we have the power that we've been accustomed to. And so, like you said, it becomes a dog whistle. And unfortunately, CRT has been used as a political pawn to say, let's divert the conversation so we don't deal with the real issue. So I completely agree. Can I jump in here so, with a question? Sure. Mm-hmm. It's been my observation that in the last three or four years, racism physically in the United States has gotten worse. And civil rights have been threatened, much more so in the last several years. And and uh, just horrendous murders for no particular reason. And are these activities, these actions, this observation that I'm having connected at all to our lack of integrating the different cultures in the United States? There absolutely can be a direct correlation made to it. Yes, absolutely. Because you have an increase in social media and you have an increase in awareness 
and racism and racial acts and ra- the racial inequality that exists. And of course, with COVID, us living in the time of COVID, it exploded everything, correct? Right? Yes. We have COVID, we have George Floyd, we have all this that put I'm racism and race. Exactly. We put it, it put it all on the table and said, hey, look, you, you swept it under the rug all this time and the rug is lifted. You cannot hide it anymore. And it's not about trying to say, oh, let's not make white people feel guilt, bad about themselves or feel guilty. And it's no longer talking about, hey, your comfort is where I need to focus on. It's like, no, we have to deal with all this stuff because, like you said, this has been long. It's, it's, it's generations. It's centuries of impact that now is exploding because when you're talking about the things that are going on in the environment it has to do with pain and trauma that has been imposed by the things that has that non-dominant cultures have experienced those everyday indignities all the strife and everything that comes simply because of the color of their skin and the things that happen because of it and so like you said it's on the forefront it's there and you have a group of people who are saying we're no longer willing to let your comfort be my concern we're we we want black brown indigenous and asian folks to feel as much a part of this american society and have rights and have equality and be treated like humans just like the dominant culture and so yes it's there and it's an explosion and it's and it's not to be taken it's not it's not to go away anytime soon so dr joanne then let me clarify what dr iris and i just said based on you continuing to educate us first if i'm hearing you correctly perhaps it's not that racism has gotten worse it's just that racism has become normalized again and put forth publicly again. Not that it ever went away, if in fact our society is grounded in, in race and racial inequality. And second, the, the true dog whistle then, if there is one, is not that some wacky theory is being taught to our students that has no basis in fact, but rather that sometimes the truth hurts. And when the facts are put out there, the facts are not pretty as it relates to the history of race in our country. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. The facts are not pretty, and people have been living with it, and and it's been acceptable for many because of that dehumanization, right? They're not the same. They're not us. The, the, the dominant culture is the standard, and if they're not part of that standard, then their pain and their concerns just isn't a priority. And so, yeah, you have all that. So all the racism, all the racial inequality, all of that has always existed, yes, and it's there, and it's brought to the forefront right now. So, yes, I agree with what you're saying, yes. We're going to need to take another break. We'll be back in just a few moments on The Window. We're back. Dr. Joe, can we continue? Yes, we are back on The Window. We've been great today, first with Dr. Carolyn Denard, and now with Dr. Joanne Lunsford as we begin Black History Month by just talking about what is this thing called black history. We're currently talking about critical race theory, and we're talking about how that is or is not integrated into the study of the truth about American history as taught to our children, and also what critical race theory says and is about as studied by scholars at higher levels, doctoral students and and law students. But this term racism, Dr. Joanne, continues to haunt us, if you will. There are people who say, well, gee, I'm not racist. I love everyone. And so when you talk about our society as being a racist society, that's just not true. Based on your studies, what does racism even mean? So racism basically is just like, in the simplest form, the prejudice and discrimination against a person or a group of people, right? And it sets up this system of inferiority and superiority. And so it's basically saying this person is black, brown, indigenous, or Asian, and I don't like them simply because of it. And that could be because of stereotypes. That could be uh, because of a a single personal experience, or that could be because of rumors or because of the way someone was raised or whatever. And it's usually based off of, well, it is, it's based off of ignorance and false notions and information, and it causes us, unfortunately, to make decisions and uh, treat people differently that, in a way that really is preposterous. Can I jump in here just real quickly? Sure. As we talk about what racism looks like. It just seems like yesterday that there was a black man in the White House. Mm-hmm, yes. And things were 
so much more optimistic than they are right now. And then we had the insurrection. Yes. And then we had the pandemic. And there's been one thing after the other. But one thing for sure is that there is some hostility between groups of people in the marketplace. And hostility is definitely um, a, a lighter term to use, yes. But hostility, it could be termed as. Yes. I wonder what it really is. There's, there, there's definitely outright um, outright rage and anger. Carol Anderson did a great book, White Rage, and um, it talks about that, indi- that, that anger that exists within a dominant culture from the indignation of those of non-dominant cultures wanting to exercise their rights, wanting to be treated as human, wanted to, wanting to do things like get, get a home. I remember your um, last caller talking about the GI Bill, wanting people to... Uh, wanting to get a home, wanting to have um, ownership in cars or be able to have or get a job, get promoted at jobs and things like that. Like, how dare you want to take these things from us because of that lack of that, that perception of we're the threatened one, right? Because that reverse discrimination, they think that who they, they have a misguided perception of who really is the threatened and who has the perception of a threatened state. And so when you have um, the dominant culture thinking that they're the threatened people, it's reverse discrimination and all this other kind of stuff, that's what allows that racism to be perpetuated and in, in going on because if they say things like CRT, um, instead of realizing that uh, CRT teaches about racism and discrimination it doesn't teach racism and discrimination and so it also talks about the systems and systematic structures and institutional and all those things that that perpetuate racism or practice racism and allow a society to sustain that treats those who are not of the dominant culture as inferior and so that part that that's part of it all and it's a it becomes a vicious cycle, and it becomes one that those who are non-dominant culture have to live with every day, every minute of the day, and it impacts their lives. And those with the dominant culture don't aren't always able to see that, and they may not be enraged with that because they are benefiting from that privilege, and so they don't feel the need to be outraged. And those that are those that are outraged by racism and things and the impact of it may not be so quick to stand up, speak up, and act and act upon it. So help me think through this then, Dr. Joanne, maybe the example of the election of a black president in the United States is a a good example of what we're talking about today, perhaps. So that is a fact that will likely make it into the mainstream American history textbooks because they talk about presidents. And so it would be hard to overlook the fact that we had a black president. So there are lots of things that happen in that same time frame in terms of contributions of black Americans and other cultures to this country that might not make it in the history book, but that fact probably will. However, as it relates to critical race theory, the fact that we had a black president, but that still didn't cure racism in America might be noteworthy to a CRT scholar in that there were people in high places who stood in his face and told him they wanted to make sure he wasn't successful, and other people who apparently became so threatened by the ideal of a black man in office that they took steps within our political system, for example, to try to keep that from happening again. Or even now, let's talk about voting rights legislation. And yes, this is X number of years after President Obama, but there are people now who are so afraid of everyone having the right to vote for fear that the results won't turn out to their advantage, that they're actually changing the laws and taking us back, as Dr. I said, to decades ago and our right to vote. So is that correct? Does critical race theory talk to us about how deeply ingrained racism is in this country, such that every time we'd like to believe we've made a few steps forward, we have a whole system that we have to contend with. Is that accurate or not? It, yes, it's accurate. It is because, and um, like you said, it was so monumental to have the first African American president not only elected but reelected into the highest office of the nation, and how people were able to do things and say things that never would have flown with other dominant culture uh, presidents of the past or even of the future, and were able to, like you said, go in his face and say, 
because of because we just don't want it. We just we do not want Obamacare because it's going to have your name and it'll be a part of your legacy. And you have people like Mitch McConnell who still to this day say, "Look, we don't have racism. We gave you the presidency, then we 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 elected in a Barack Obama. That's evidence that there's no more racism. We we had this person, so it also allowed for that false perception. But like you said, yes, it, it critical race theory says, and it's le- especially in legal because legal legal arena. When you have Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, Crenshaw, people like that, who are the originators of the critical race theory, who brought it in through their legal studies and their in law schools and things like that, it says, "Look, we have these laws on the books. We have these. We have a political system, and we have to look at what is impacting it. What is what's mess, what's what about the structure?" And it's saying we have to think about not just the existence of it, but how did it how does it how did it get created how does it maintain its existence and what impact does it have and critical race theory definitely that's why it was brought about it was saying hey not only it was saying one okay the civil it was post it was pretty much post civil rights it was saying hey is the civil rights movement enough now is is, is the momentum still going and so they were like, we need this critical race theory to take it to the next level. But it also said, hey, we need to look into these structures and we have to see how they are perpetuated and how they perpetuate the racism and racial inequality that exists in the system. So absolutely, yes. Now, you mentioned Obamacare. There were studies and interviews that were done that would ask people, are you in favor of Obamacare? And they would say, absolutely not. And they yes. say, Gee, are you in favor of the Affordable Care Act? And they'd say, absolutely, we want affordable health care. Exactly. And, and they'll say, I don't, I don't have Obamacare. I have Affordable Care Act. Okay. Right. 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 Because of, as you said, they were just threatened by the fact that if I support anything Obama, it's, it's taking me back to a time when I, I was openly afraid of black people. And now I've gotten over my fear of black people, but now I should be afraid again. So we need to make America great again. Back when we kept everybody in their place, perhaps, is what some think was making America great again. Yeah, whatever that means, making great America, make America great again. And what, what, what time zone is that? And what, who was it great for? If we don't take um, racial uh, education and harmony back to education I'm talking about kindergarten all the way through then we're going to be talking about this 30 years from now absolutely absolutely that's why I argue for when people are talking about STEM education which is great then they said let's do STEAM education because they add arts to it because we have critical theories and all that and I'm like we need streamer right we need race we need science technology race ethnicity arts um math, uh, engineering, social skills. We need all of that. Reading, right? We need all of that because we can't take little components to make inclusive, complete little human beings that become much more caring and compassionate adult human beings. We have to put in the the history of all so that we have that compassion and we have that connection to and we see people as human instead of keeping, um, instead of perpetuating that whole inferior in, uh, inferior and superior, different than, and all that. We need to be able to say, we need to be able to, to teach people that all humans are human, and when we have that compassion and connection to them, we have to definitely start when they're young. Um, we will continue, like you said, 20 years from now to still have this conversation unnecessarily and unfortunately. You know, you you made me say, I just have to say one more thing, because you took me back to when I was in um, elementary school, and I had a part-time job in the summer working on the playgrounds. And I asked one of the children, a white child, to go home and ask their mother if I could have some water. Dead summer, burning up. She came back sometime later and said, um, my mom said that you can't have any water. I'm only black person on the playground. And then she says, do you have a tail? Oh, wow. I said, excuse me? She says, my mom said that colored people have tails. I, I, I had to go home that day. I could not believe it. And I'm so sorry you ever had to endure that. Yeah. But it's acceptable for you and to endure that, but it's not acceptable for their children to, to have to learn about it. 
that's the really unfortunate part. Well, what I'm saying is that as long as a, as a lie can be perpetuated to keep someone else powerless, mm-hmm. yes, it'll happen. And if we want true justice, so, equity, yeah. diversity, and inclusion, we have to have CRT-informed education at the primary and secondary levels as well as the bachelor's level, as well as the master's level, so that they can get to the understanding of having CRT in their education at the doctoral level. So what do we do, Dr. Joanna, in our, in our remaining minutes for our audience? What can each one of us do, starting with this Black History Month, to perpetuate that knowledge that we need to have a true and accurate history of our country? Well, we can have a commitment to ourselves to learn it. Not We can't assume that everyone of color actually even knows their own history, right? So we have to have a commitment mm-hmm. to learning it. And then we have to have a commitment to teaching it, and we have to have a commitment to living it. And so when we do that and other people see us living in that, they then learn to it. And then dominant culture then adopts it as part of their culture. And then that's when we have true effective change. Because when they get to the point of... We're to the point of awareness and empowerment, but when they get there to the point of, of, of awareness, when uh, the dominant culture gets to the point of empowerment, that's when they no longer accept anything, not just for themselves, but for others, and we transform this country. In weeks to come on the window, we'll talk about not only how to learn more about racism and our society, but what can we do to try to change it? Is this something that we just normalize? for the rest of our lives and the lives of our children and grandchildren. Dr. Joanne Lunsford, thank you so much. Thank you for joining so us today. Thank Dr. you. Peace Ayo, and blessings. To close us out. And you. next Saturday, we're going to talk about black culture with the founder, one of the founders of Urban Jazz Coalition and a representative from the King Arts Complex. Dr. Joe, which person is coming Actually, we're going to talk to the Lincoln Theater, but we'll have oh, okay. more about that on our website, yes. thewindownow.com, where you can go and listen to all of our past episodes. And also send us feedback, thewindowfeedback at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Enjoy your day.